1: indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 410 of our ongoing exploration of the immersive cosmos This week on the show, Jessica Kovzanski, the writer and director of Measure Still for Measure, which is currently in its premiere run at Boston Court Pasadena, joins us to talk about making a site-specific meta-theatrical play out of one of Shakespeare's problem plays about a very problematic theater production. Yes, that's right. It's a theater nerd episode, and we really, really go there. Check out the No Pro review of the show by our friend Juliet Bennett Ryla in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to the New York City Immersive Meetup, which is coming up on October 9th in New York City at Culture Lab LIC, which features guests from Linked Dance Theater, whose The Incomplete Collection is launching this weekend, and Transforma Theater. Only 20 tickets remain as I read this. Who knows how many by the time you hear? And yes, we'll have RSVPs up for our meetup at the Roguelike Tavern in Burbank on October 16th, going up next week. Mark your calendars, because we're going to try and turn this into a live taping of the podcast for funsies. And hey, uh, got a little bit of news for you about another event that's happening for the industry. i uh, going to talk to you about that after the interview, after the episode. You should check that out. Uh, it's not in the opening notes because I want to keep this a little tight, but it's coming up in Denver in November, and you're going to want to know about it. All right. There is so much on the site this week, even though I'm taking off for my talk at the Lucid Immersive Summit, yet another industry event, in Singapore, which I'm leaving for tomorrow night uh, and going to be talking on the 29th, along with folks from Punch Drunk and Meow Wolf and Team Lab. Very excited to be there. Uh... So we're getting this episode out early, that's why this is dropping on a Wednesday, because on Friday I'm going to be on the other side of the planet, which is just wild. Uh, but there's so much on the site already, we've like rushed to get it all to you, our SoCal Spooky Season Special Edition Review Rundown went up. That's got reviews of Angel of Light, Delusion, Universal Halloween Horror Nights, and Not Scary Farm. And on top of that, a regular edition of the Review Rundown with six reviews, including ABBA Voyage in London, and all of that's live right now. Check it all out at noprescidium.com right now. All of this is powered by our incredible Patreon backers. This week, we have five new backers, Frida G. Miller. Katrina Latt, Michael Mazukawa, Madeline Perez, and Frank Lawler. This wave has lifted our spirits and brought us up to just being 18 new backers shy of the 450-backer milestone. A big, big psychological. A thing for us we can do this we can get there we can get there this spooky season now if you've already gone to patreon.com slash no see I, just, I assume you have and shown your support the best way to help is to share the podcast or one of the articles you found useful the review rundowns those those are good or maybe the call sheet uh, which lists professional opportunities Share those on your social media platform of choice. Uh, It's a fractured world out there. Send send us an email to some friends. Get the word out. It helps us and it helps the makers of these shows and the people who are casting things find the people they need to connect with. It's up to all of us to do that effort. As always, a big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl. John Boulette, Cameo Wood, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Genties, Kirk Collins, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hands on, Lekker LeCool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And as always, if you've got some special offers you want to offer up our Patreon backers, hit me up at noah at and we can talk about details. And with that, let's get into this week's interview and then come back around to learn about what's going on in Denver this November. We are sitting in the office of Jessica Kobzanski, the artistic director of Boston Court Pasadena, a theater here in Pasadena and also the writer and director of Measure Still for Measure, a truly excellent piece of site-specific meta-theater, as I would call it, here in Pasadena that's running right now while we're still uh, recording and while when this goes out into the world. Jessica, thank you so much for tolerating my scattered presence today in your office.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for your kind words, Noah, and um, what a joy to be talking to you.
1: So for those who listen to the podcast outside of the Southland and who might not be familiar with Boston Court Pasadena, uh, tell us a little bit about the company.
0: Yeah, Boston Court Pasadena is, um, is a is an intimate performing arts center located in Pasadena. Um, And we have a long history of doing a great deal of risky, adventurous new work, as well as significantly re-envisioned classics. We also do an eclectic and rich variety of music concerts. We have rotating art upfront exhibits, et cetera. And all of it is we consider ourselves an innovative and incubation space for exciting new work. You this
1: is the first time y'all have done something that reaches into to, to, to my knowing, and I think to the how you've all talked about it, that reaches into like the immersive site-specific, site-responsive realm. Why make the choice to dive into this this space right now?
0: I will say, you know, I have I am blessed to be one of Boston Court's artistic directors since inception. I am currently its sole artistic director, but when we started, I had. A co-artistic director for theater, and then eventually we also had an artistic director for music. And it wasn't until January of 2020 that I became the sole artistic director, um, in charge of our, all the art in the building. And um, but since I've met this space, I've been sort of blown away and gobsmacked by what an amazing space it is. And I've always dreamed of sharing the entirety of the campus with people, um, and that's partially because. I think this space is a magical space in which so many kinds of incubation happen and it's a beautiful space to sort of experience, not just the way the public experiences it when it is actually fully, we are doing a full production or we're doing a concert and people come in and they sort of buy a ticket and they walk into the lobby and then they walk into one of those spaces and see a performance. But the, opportunity to share what a making space it is Mm. was really exciting to me and to I'm I'm fascinated by the use of spaces unconventionally um and so for the opportunity to share what the space is like when it is not in its formal performance mode but what it might be like when it is basically a a space of creative incubation was really exciting to me
1: how'd you zero in on taking measure for measure which is one of the bard's problem plays as as everyone likes to say because structured like a comedy but boy is it depressing
0: <laughs> uh true <laughs>
1: uh right um and and with its themes that well i'll i'll, I'll let you riff on on that because there's elements in this play for those those who know. Shakespeare heads know like oh measure for measure uh oh um, Why? what was the lure to tackle a show about making that show in your space in, in part because you know the problem play and a problem production of the problem play but being done site specifically to your space like there's there's a degree of like a, I'm inviting the demons in to like be exercised
0: yeah right I might need to have my head examined I think that <laughs> I think that might actually be the right answer but the the whole kind of conflation of several ideas which is that I am in love with the theatrical process I am in love with um, the rehearsal process I spend most of my life I am primarily a director I started my life as a playwright then I segued and for many many years I was purely a director Um, and I am always so sorry for people who don't get to be in rehearsal, because magic oh. things happen in rehearsal that you cannot ultimately keep in a full production. But some of that magic is part of I, you know, because of the nature of the complexity of what I'm trying to do with this story, the subject matter, the hashtag me too ness of the original play, meaning Measure for Measure, um, and in our current world. Um, initially when we were talking about how to talk about the play, I initially was thinking, well, we should describe this as a love letter to the theater. Mm. And it got much more complex than that, because it's not a pure love letter by any means. But what was personally, what was really passionate for me was to share with people, I I essentially wanted this piece to be an all access pass, that the audience got to be an all access pass. Uh, had have an all-access pass to, um, to what it takes to make a play. Um, and I think most people have no idea what goes into making a play. And I think it's fascinating. And the granular detail around rehearsal is something that I am in love with, I think is rich. I think it's fascinating. I think actors are the bravest humans on the planet. I think designers are incredible. I think stage managers are amazing. And I just wanted... People who don't have any ability to understand that, if you just come and see a full production where all those people are, many of those people are invisible, I wanted them to see what the whole process looks like. And I thought that would be a really fascinating thing to share. So that was part of what my motivation was. I'm also just in the way that David Auburn has a play called Proof, which is really about um, the language of mathematics. And that is a foreign language to me. Um, but I am fascinated when someone gives me a play in which I am a cultural tourist and I get to witness somebody else being deeply inside a world as a cultural native, if that makes sense. yeah. And so um, in that way, I was really interested in giving an audience the opportunity to sort of have a real bird's eye view of what was happening. And kind of inchoate language that happens between performers, which is based on an enormous history that unless you are part of the history of the rehearsal and witness the the conversation and the adjustments that happen in a rehearsal, you have no idea what that choice means. And I wanted to give the audience access to it. I also wanted to give all of us access to a place that most of us never get to go. Even the director is not supposed to be in the, um, in the dressing room after half hour, so the fact that the camera gave us access to hidden spaces backstage, in conversations that personally I would never be part of, was all part of the fascination for why to do this in this particular way.
1: What struck me when uh, I, I came to see the show, more than anything, was that you know so structurally you the the show kind of works in sort of three phases, two acts with three phases. There's a, a bit of a pre-show action going on where things start to stir. There's characters in the parking lot where yeah. where characters would be uh, or actors would be before the show. Uh, they're they're wandering around a little bit. There's folks in the lobby. There are things that are happening in the lobby before sort of a, a, a company muster, a company call happens in the lobby that kind of solidifies everyone in the audience. And the audience, so everyone knows, is our flies on the wall uh there we're we're we don't have a formal role in this space, but we are we are tra- traversing it and then for the first half uh, Some stuff happens in the lobby some stuff happens in the rehearsal space uh, The audience is split and then for the after intermission uh, Everything's happening in the theater when everyone get the, the company gets to get on the stage and start start working the piece and what I thought was interesting was that you know this this could have been a play about a play and the rehearsal could have just happened on the stage. There'd be a way to approach it and do that. But by utilizing the rehearsal space, utilizing the lobby, and grounding us into the building as a building, that when we moved into the theater proper, into the main stage, that it sort of ceased to be a stage where we were watching a performance and became a place where people were working. And so it took on the the character of what it really is. And then you had this kind of interesting like doubling effect of we're watching this, we're watching people make a play, and we know we're watching a play, but there's a, a reality here that's being summoned down because we're not being asked, in this kind of Brechtian fashion, we're not being asked to imagine that what we're looking at is anything but what we're actually looking at. We are here as a witness yeah. to what's happening. Um, and it felt like the kind of thing where it doesn't suggest a format that people can just like rely upon. Like I could see other people trying to do this, but your writing is so specific and so sharp and the direction is so sharp that it now feels like, well, someone's played this card out of the deck and you can't do it again. (laughs) Cause like, here's this show that does this and does it very well. And this shall not be a genre, you know, like like (laughs) you said, all these other worlds are yours, but do not go to this one anymore. Um, How did you find those rhythms? You talked about wanting to share the space with everybody. How did you you find that route of drawing everyone in and then landing in the main stage? What was that arc for you?
0: Yeah, I will say that one of the sections that makes me the happiest, is actually the rehearsal scenes that are happening in the rehearsal space. Um, and that's partially because there's a kind of journey anytime you're rehearsing a play. Um, and it starts in a really sort of a cocoon-like, womb-like environment of the rehearsal space. And as soon as you get into the main stage, there it, of any theater, by the way, this is not unique to Boston Court, um, but any usually one rehearses a play in a rehearsal space where the space is taped, The stuff isn't real. If there's structure, you don't have it in the rehearsal space. And um, there's a kind of freedom and discovery that happens in that space. Um, When you move into the actual space where the structures are real and um, it it suddenly adds a kind of performance pressure. Mm -hmm. And as a director, I'm constantly trying to orchestrate how much time we get in the incubation space before we move into the performance space. So for me, it was especially important to me to share a a scene at least or two in the rehearsal space before we went into the main stage, Um, just to sort of um, share with the audience how freeing that is. Oh, the props aren't here. You'll have to mime the things, et cetera, et cetera. just give a kind of discovery and permission in that space. Um, and then ultimately bringing us into the main stage, I mean, I had a lot of yearnings for this piece. And one of the yearnings that I really had was that I really wanted people to understand that Shakespeare, beloved Shakespeare, with all the in te- attendant today challenges of making a Shakespeare play, because Shakespeare is harmful and problematic, um, and also splendid and universal, and also all the things. But I also, part of my goal was that, oh, when actors are speaking that text, and they're doing it well with, with <laughs> from time to time, really good direction, um, and they are illuminating the true humanity in the text... That is a beautiful thing. I also wanted people to see people contending with the Shakespearean language today and what the challenges might be. So I had so many yearnings for this play was, I wanted to help people understand that, that Shakespeare can be great, that Shakespeare can be incredibly challenging, that there's a rhythm in rehearsal that is granular and specific. Oh, the director suggests that a character should kneel. Oh, then the stage manager jumps up and says, "Hey, the box of knee pads are backstage. The actor decides whether or not they actually want to use the knee pads or not, And that kind of thing. And that is a an ordinary, very usual element of rehearsal. I just don't know if anyone has bothered to actually articulate it and make it actual make it text, you know.
1: Well, I, I want, I'd love to like drill in on that moment because like that moment in particular, there's like these layers going on because there's, there's the play is about power and agency and dynamic and who's protecting whom and whether or not they're actually protecting anyone, which is also what Measure for Measure is about. Yes. So that, that, that doubling of, of it. So you, you could have, to share the space joyously with your community, you could have picked Twelfth Night. You could, have picked, <laughs> yes. you could have picked something silly, ridiculous. You know, True. You, you could have you could have gone. You could have done something weird, like chose Mary Wives for Windsor. Windsor. I don't yeah. know, why you would. No. <laughs> but like, you know, you could you could have gone somewhere, but you went right for one of the one of the more difficult pieces of the of the canon, and and one that can, you know, has ambiguities, is 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 deeply problematic, deeply problematic, yeah. depressing, angerifying. Mm-hmm. Why why go for the jugular? Why was it going to be... Was it always going to be measure for measure?
0: I mean, the desire to use the building site specifically happened long before I had any idea in what way I wanted to use the building and for what purpose. Um, so that desire was already there. I'm not sure when it became um, measure for measure, but this whole thing had a very long incubation process. And I will say that the kind of power dynamics that are, you know, say what you can, my false or ways, you're true. This the kind of inherent power dynamics of things is something that has been deeply on my mind. The hashtag Me Too story, the the story about theater making and how to make theater safely, inclusively, respectfully, while recreating harmful be- human behavior yeah. is a really current challenge for everyone in our business and I was interested in trying to understand how it happens and I was not interested in writing a play about Harvey Weinstein. Um, I was interested in writing a play in which we're all operating in really significantly gray areas all the time and so the gray areas of what is and isn't acceptable behavior and all of the I don't know. I, I have no idea why I wanted to get so close to the third rail of all of this conversation. I I really <laughs> it is frankly a genuinely terrifying thing to have embarked on, but it I've been thinking about you know, I've been thinking about systemic yeah. um, systemic systems and power dynamics. For a very long time and so that was part of how it all kind of coalesced
1: oh, one of the things I think that's fascinating in the show is you can you can see you can see what's gonna what might what might happen you you can start to the, there are very specific moments that are first you know almost like out the corner of your eye based on how characters are reacting how they're how they're indicating what you know they're worried about you know, each other's perceptions or or willingness to be in a room with each other. So that then when we find them alone in a room with each other, the tension in the room goes all the way up because we're worried that something's going to happen. And of course, something, things have to happen. But then, even after that point, you get these moments where, you know, because, I mean, spoiler alert, you know, like one of the problematic, the core problematic figure is like the director who's also performing in the piece. Which, you know, that, you know, power dynamics there are like, well, that's, that just adds an extra five different layers to it. Um, And, but you, you see these moments when he, he adjusts what they're doing and then the way you have it go is often that scene, the direction he makes is good. yeah And the scene comes together and you're like, oh shit know what he's doing he's actually really good at his job yeah and you also can see the train wreck coming you're like oh this is this is gonna go wrong but he's a solid director like did you feel i mean was that part of the third railness to you of like you know you know like you make everyone like at the top of their game in so many ways yes
0: that was paramount to me that was absolutely critical because i you know, bad productions. I'll just use another Shakespeare play as an example. Bad productions of Richard the Third. You know, <laughs> of which there um, are many. Of which there are oh, many. God,
1: I was in one. <laughs> so oh, sorry.
0: Oh, oh. Um, but, Maybe
1: the worst of all time. I'll tell you later.
0: Yeah, uh. but bad productions of Richard the Third make Richard the Third a, a, a mustache twirling villain, and then he addresses the country. And all the people on stage who are supposed to play his constituents are supposed to applaud and seem really excited that they have a new king. And, um, you know, what I contend is that if 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 I, the audience, can see that Richard is a mustache-twirling villain, then so can the people on stage. So bad productions of Richard III make an entire cast of characters on stage stupid because mm-hmm. they can see that he's an evil guy, but their, but their roles require them to say, yay, we're so excited, we have a new ruler. So that's absolutely what I did not want to do, and this is how, the, I believe this is truly how this happens, because people who are very skilled and at the top of their game can also be wonderful and or terribly problematic humans. And so that's the gray that I was looking for, throughout is I it was really important to me that if if everybody immediately like I didn't want to make I love the characters that I you know I will say I helped create because the actors the DNA of the actors and so is so deeply in all of these characters but having said that I love all those people and I don't want them to be idiots and if you know so they that means that everything has to be 100% um, plausible, and from their perspective, it all makes sense.
1: The sense I get out of the writing for each of these humans you've conjured on stage with, along with the actors, is that, like a therapist, you have an an understanding and an empathy for where each of these people is at, and then you also have a sense of as like a leader and as like a, a, a sociologist. A a judging eye on on what they are doing and and you know how the role they are inhabiting and how their their humanness is either enhancing or corrupting the role they have in this structured society of a theatrical production and are they are they living up to the principles of their role or are they letting their weaknesses corrupt the way they act upon the
0: world. Right. Well, thank you. That's a very beautiful compliment. <laughs> it's it's rare.
1: <laughs> I see I see a lot of stuff in, in a lot of formats, and it is rare to see writing and directing, and I think it, 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 they have to go hand in hand to to realize this. That has both the individual psychology and the larger structural dynamics at play and i think that's the thing that excites me most about this show is i feel it i mean and maybe as a theater person of course i think i think only a piece of meta theater can (laughs) highlight that so clearly because in theater in production you are you're who you are. You're the role you're inhabiting, and you become very conscious sometimes of the the dichotomy between the two. Or you watch from the outside someone else. You know, oh, we're doing a production of The Rover, and every womanizing trait of your lead starts to come out, and he starts like you know doing bad things with people, and you're like, well, maybe we shouldn't have done a production of The Rover. Uh-huh. It's right? like we're we're asking for trouble. Um, so thing, you watch stuff like that happen and then you start to understand the world as a whole and how, oh, here's this person inhabiting a role and the role is not the person and the person is not the role. And, and, and that's very natural for us in theater to understand that those, the, the bleed that happens between the two. But outside of the theater, you know, people don't tend to think about the dichotomy between, well, like I'm me, but I'm playing at being someone but at the same time when you're playing you are doing yeah and so you get into it and it gets into you and 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 where does the line begin and end
0: yeah yes I agree it is it is a very um the meta-ness is real I will just say we had hilarious moments where I was sitting across the room from the director and the stage manager staging something in the Branson. And then I had to go sit next to the director because I had to see it from the perspective that the director would actually block it from, you know? Mm-hmm. And so then I had my actual stage manager come and stand next to our <laughs> our uh, the character, Alexis, the stage manager, just to sort of allow us to have joy in the meta of that ridiculous moment where i had to actually come and sit in the director's actual ne- right next to the actual director's chair in order to stage that thing the way he would stage it <laughs> um uh, so yeah
1: understanding layers of, of perspective
0: yeah tell me about
1: casting and pulling this this cast together cuz like they're they're it's a dynamic group of performers yes and they they're, they're splendid and they're all bringing uh the ones who are playing actors, there's like a couple of different archetypes in there, and yet they're also like, you know, really, it, you know, seem like fully individuated people. So how, how do you put this? Is this the company of the theater or do you put together no. a different crew every time?
0: No, thank you for asking. Boston Court does such eclectic work. There is no way we could hang on to a company of actors because we tend to do a diversity of stories and storytellers, and that requires wide swaths of actors. I don't think we could keep a company of actors happy because you know, we are doing such richly different work from show to show. Um, no, this was actually this Julia Flores is, uh, was our casting director and we spent a great deal of time auditioning people and a couple of actors re-auditioned who had been in a workshop I did and the rest actually, um, came in new for the full production. And, um, And it was a very slow, painstaking casting session because um, I was looking for so many richly intersectional identities in so many different ways. And, you know, many of them had to be very comfortable with Shakespeare as well as kind of really interesting human beings, you know. And so it was a long, loving, challenging, wonderful process of finding all the people how long were
1: you? You mentioned the workshop production. How long were you in development on this from inception to delivery?
0: Um, well, that's such an interesting question. I don't even know how to answer it, to be honest. Take because, the widest view. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I started writing elements of it in 2018 or okay, 2019 yeah. Yeah. or something like that. And then I the, think it's important for people
1: to hear because some people turn things around in, in, in the immersive community very quickly. Oh, yeah. And I always like when people find out oh, this is baking for a very long time. Every time there's a really good production, it's like, oh, this has been baking for five years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then in 2020, um, Signet Theatre Company, which is a theater company in San Diego, has something they call the Finish Line Festival, which is a week-long development workshop. And at the time, the associate artistic director, Robbie Lutfi, um, offered me a slot in the Finish Line Festival to bring the work. And that was really the first forcing ground that it was a beautiful gift because every night I had a cast of people that I had to (laughs) have pages for. And so I did a lot of, you know, it really sort of became the beginnings of itself in that workshop. Um, And it, it had one reading that night and then that was in February of 2020 And then... What took so long after that? Yeah. (laughs) And then I think you know what happened after that. and And then running a theater during a pandemic was an insane thing to do. Boston Court did create an escape room, a virtual escape room during that time, where we invited people to come and um, it was actually, it was theater based. And it was a really fun thing apropos of the varieties of things that we did and the whole staff created that and um people played from their couches and we had a walker in the boston court space and so that was fun but actually nothing happened on measure because (laughs) because it didn't seem like we were ever going to be able to do something like that again and then when it started in in 22 as it started to become clear that maybe we could program something like that in um January of 23, I basically had a four-day workshop, stretched over seven days, um, was just sitting around the table and reading the play and having conversations. And then in end of July, we went into actual rehearsal and we cast in April. In, it,
1: from the end of July till to the launch, like the final stretch, how, did the script change? Uh, radically rad- daily. Radically daily.
0: Yes, to the poor the poor actors. <laughs> Was some of that with
1: what you were defining in the room with the actors? Yes, yeah. definitely.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah all these actors have had so much influence on really smart things. Things like I I wrote a piece of direction for Bruce that when I, you know, one of the fascinating things about doing thank goodness I had production manager who anticipated how long this rehearsal process would take because it became clear that I didn't couldn't just unpack the Kabzansky as we talk about the play but we had to unpack the Shakespeare the measure mm. and so that that you know table work if you are have the luxury of table work on a Shakespeare play that's about a week of work yeah. and you know my play also needed a week of table work so there was a lot of table work and some of it half of it was on the actual Shakespeare One of the things that became clear, for instance, is that Bruce was giving a piece of direction um, that was incorrect once I understood the Shakespeare better. And so
1: I'll ask you which one it was offline. (laughs) I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but I'm very curious. But
0: then so part of the rewrites had to do with what direction is Bruce giving in this and how is he adjusting the scene? And so yeah. a lot of that was in discovery with actors who suggested things, you know. Oh, you know, I was thinking, for instance, I'm now going to talk about a, a Sam who plays Angelo moment. And he was like, I was just thinking that I should I should really try this as if she's very unimportant and she's just a, you know. and that, And that became a direction where Sam started by being riveted Bruce suggested that she become docket number 47 and Sam made the adjustment. And that is one of the things that I really, I hope, I appreciate that I get to shout this out because one of the amazing things that the actors are doing is committing to playing scenes wrong at first because they have to be adjusted. And so they have to make an initial choice, which is not the most brilliant choice so that the director can give them a note and they can adjust it. And so that is one of the kind of ridiculously delicious meta things of discovering many things in this process.
1: But I, I also think for someone who's a student of theater and particularly for specifically theater students to see that process also frees you up to know like, Oh, this is the time to make the wrong choice. Yeah. This is the time to like adjust and play around. This is the time to like discover and like, Oh, can we just try it this way? Like let's try it this way and see how we feel about it. No, do we hate it? You know, and, 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 and then also watching people lock in and just close themselves off to like maybe what the text is actually trying to tell them and they just can't hear it right then yeah. again i mean that's a, that's our judging from the outside yeah um you've you've now exercised your site specific muscles here with this <laughs> yes uh, how do you feel about that form, and, and is it something you're tempted to tackle again, or have you exercised it out of your system?
0: You know, I don't think I realize I, re- I, I forgot that I, I play with this kind of form quite a bit, and it's definitely the first time we've ever done it at Boston Court. Personally, I um, have directed a number of um, a number of uh, youth, um, Symphony for Youth pieces for the LA Phil, which is sort of an organic muscle in using space unconventionally because some of those pieces have had 120-piece um, orchestra on the stage. That means there's a tiny strip of stage, and the Disney Concert Hall has to become the rest of your environment and your stage and things like that. I realized that I... Um, did a walking around production of the Scottish play in Edinburgh, where um, a witch stepped out from a sepulchre in Greyfriars Kirkyard and began the play and that kind of thing. And then the audience followed and we ended up the, the you know, the, the I'm just going to be, you know, the Mackers Castle was in Lady Stairs Close and things like that. So I kind of forgot that I'm 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 passionate about discovering what can be a theater, and especially in our world right now, mm-hmm. you know, the lizard brain of theater is not going anywhere. Theater's never going to die. Um, you know, it's, it's baked into the storytelling need on behalf of humans is forever. Does it have to be in an institution? Like what can be a, what can be a making space? And that's always interesting to me. So I also, by the way, love to do a play in a theater with four walls and a bunch of great design. And, you know, so I I, I I, kind of love it all. So I would say this is not the last time I will explore a space unconventionally, um, but it's certainly the first time I've ever gotten to do it at Boston Court and that was thrilling.
1: Fantastic. Jessica, it's, it's running uh, into October. Uh, if you're within the Southland and hear this, uh, please get yourself to Boston Court, Pasadena, to check out Measure Still for Measure. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today.
0: Thank you so much, Noah. What a joy it has been to talk to you.
1: Once again, I want to thank Jessica for being our guest on the show this week. Go see Measure Still for Measure at Boston Court Pasadena if you're here in the Southland or if you're passing through, perchance, uh, it, it, particularly if you are a theater nerd. Uh, and if that conversation did it for you, the show really, really will. All right. All right. I am gonna get out of here as fast as I can. I promised you a little bit of information. So, our friends at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Off Center, uh, our good friend Charlie Miller, along with some folks from the Blumenthal Performing Arts and a, a consulting firm called AMS Planning and Research, have put together a event for industry professionals, uh, a convening for performing arts organizations and immersive producers, creators, and industry professionals in denver this november 13th through 15th it's called the immersive immersive and this one is targeted primarily to folks in that performing arts organization world, but also looking for a chance here to connect immersive producers and creators with those folks for this three-day event, a lot of which is going to revolve around some pitch sessions that are being put together. Now, this is uh, th- this is an industry scale, and it's, like I said, it's targeted at you know, presenting companies. So there's organizational registration fees, uh, which are $1,500 for two, and the individual registration fee is $800. So this is, this is, you know, some business expense level action here. Something I want to draw your attention to, though, is that the pitch process, uh, there is a component here that is really interesting in that everyone who puts in Uh, If you put in for the pitch process and you get selected, but you know, you can't afford to make it out. There is this kind of lookbook for pitches that is being put together as part of this and that will be distributed to people who attend. So If you are someone who has projects that are ready to go or that are really ready for some serious development, you might want to take a look at this. Both look at the immersive immersive and you might want to look at this the application process and how the pitching is going to work and how that lookbook is going to to work uh, after the event itself. Uh, the live pitches will be in Denver and will require people to be registered up. There's going to be some level of support uh, to get people out there to kind of take the edge off some of the cost. Like that is that is recognized. But keep an eye on the way that lookbook's going to work and uh, and just check it out. <laughs> check it out. All right. <laughs> Links in the show notes. Uh, you know you'll find the link to the immersive immersive. And click on the pitch application process on that uh, website in order to get more information there. Uh, It's coming up fast. Like I said, uh, we're we're just a few weeks out. And indeed, the deadline for getting the pitches in is October 9th. So also coming up fast on that. Got a little over a week to go. uh, By the time, well, maybe almost like a week and a half. Not quite two weeks by the time the earliest people will be hearing this. So uh, all coming up relatively quickly, but keep an eye on this one. And uh, maybe this one is right for you. Uh, What is right for me right now is I need to go do laundry. And I need to pack. And I need to finish my notes for the students. And I need to uh, do some other stuff before I go to sleep. And then wake up and teach a class and then get on a plane and then uh, hopefully sleep on the plane and then probably work on the plane and like I'm on a plane and then I'm in another place. So absolutely wild. This is the uh, the strangest life uh, you all enable. Um, I am very grateful for it when I get to go on one of these grand adventures. Uh, Cause the rest of the time, I'm a little homebody, uh, hiding out and watching streaming shows, and going to immersive theater and haunts, and and I had I had I had uh, I had some fun in this past week. There's been a lot of events, a lot of a lot of haunts. Uh, I think I, I wax poetic about some of the stuff I saw at Knots last week, um, so I'll spare you that. I caught Delusion, uh, and uh, you. even though Delusion uh, structured like a clip show this year, uh, some of those clips I hadn't seen because I hadn't seen all the Delusions. And honestly, uh, one of those rare things where uh, a clip show that actually works, that the story ties it together. Uh, also, technically, the end of the Delusion cycle. Uh, now, this that I said cycle, uh, much like the motorcycles that are going past. Cycle. So, not the last we're going to see of Delusion, but, uh, but, but this is where, uh, the story as we know it ends, but, but not the last we're going to see of delusion. How's these things work? I don't know. I'm, I'm just a humble podcaster who's probably going to be very sleep deprived in in a few weeks. Um, okay. On that note, uh, I hope to talk to you all soon and, uh, yeah, I'll see you when I, no wait. I gotta, I gotta say the bit, but like I'll, I'll i'll be back i'll be back around i'll be back around soon all right i'm gonna see a bunch of stuff in singapore i'm really i'm really curious and excited all right do the credits the associate producer of this podcast is parker sella music for no proscenium is by chris porter of the speakeasy society and solar the podcast special thanks to Shavano lachlan for voicing our intro this podcast is written edited hosted produced and mixed by yours truly so it's all my fault i'm noah nelson and until next time I'll see you at the show.